This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Hey everybody, this is Joshua Lewis with The Remnant Radio. The video you're about to watch is a production from our ministry. Remnant Radio is a theology broadcast. We broadcast every Monday night, 8.30 p.m. Central Standard Time here on YouTube. Uh, We have different pastors, teachers from different churches and denominations coming on the show to discuss a wide range of theological topics. Many of our guests we agree with and many of our guests we disagree with, but our goal is to understand God's word so that we can then understand the God who has given us his word. Uh, So we hope that you enjoy this conversation. We hope it's been a benefit to you. Uh, If you do enjoy this video and want to continue to help us produce content like this, we'd ask that you go down into the description of the video and donate. There's a a description link there in the video, and it would help us continue producing content just like this. Be blessed. Here with Dr. Michael Heiser. Uh, We're going to have a moment for him to introduce himself and his ministry. But before we do that, I give a quick moment to introduce our co-host today. Uh, Michael, how are you doing, man? I'm doing great. I'm excited about Michael Heiser. Me too. I was a little worried that he was April Foolsing us and be like, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna do an interview today, uh, April 1st. Like, okay, there was some message. You were like, "Uh, yeah, he, <laughs> right up to the wire. Like, are we gonna are we he, gonna do this? He has a a meeting right after this yeah. at at one o'clock his, his time, time, twelve our time central. So I asked, "What time do we need to finish?" He said, 59 after is good." <laughs> <laughs> cool, uh, Doctor Heiser. Tell us a little about yourself and your ministry before we dive into the topic. We've had you on four times, so many of our much of our audience is very familiar with you. Uh, but uh, we would love to catch up those who are maybe new to the channel. Yeah, my my title now is executive director of the Awakening School of Theology and Ministry in Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, before that. I spent 15 years at Logos Bible Software. You know, my initial title was academic editor, and then that transitioned to scholar in residence. I mostly wrote, except for the first three years or so, I mostly wrote uh, reference content and uh, herded cats with PhDs. I, I sort of, you know, super, <laughs> that's what it was, you know, supervised data projects. We created uh, different products for the software, but it was, it was a great academic job. Got to meet scholars all over the world and, and work with them. But, uh, you know, for the last several years, it was mostly writing, you know, reference content and books. So I'm, I'm sort of back in a professorial role right now, even though most of it's distance. We have this is our first semester. We're halfway through the semester. Um, it's basically my school. <clears throat> so we have a two year program. We're not pursuing accreditation or anything like that. It's just, you know, teaching biblical theology to anybody who cares. And we have 100 or so live students and another 700 distance. So I actually have a meeting today. One, I have two meetings today. The, uh, the second one will be, hey, what are we doing in the fall? You know, what, because we're going to be looking to expand uh, the, the program. So, you know, we're, we're just at the beginning stages of getting started, but it's been a good start. Excellent. So now for people who have, are tuning in and they're like, 
Dr. Heiser's been on a couple of times. Want to let you know you can go watch those videos after you watch this video. Uh, but we've done an episode on uh, angelology. We've done an episode uh, using that in, in short term. Uh, the unseen, kind of an introductory to the unseen realm. Uh, we've mm-hmm. done an episode on demons. We've done an episode on theosis, uh, of kind of uh, bearing God's name in a sense and coming into that. Uh, you, you've also had uh, Carmen uh, on your show. We're talking about bearing God's name, uh, and she yeah. came to your conference. Yeah, she came. Uh, she was just on yesterday, uh, streaming with us, doing bearing God's name. It was a phenomenal broadcast. Yeah. Uh, is, is she going to be with you in Dallas this year? Uh, we we try to have different speakers. Uh, so again, assuming there is a Naked Bible conference, she will not be there this year. But we would certainly have her back. Uh, I yeah. was I was really glad to get her. We interviewed her years ago when just you know as she was finishing her dissertation. I actually heard her at a regional ETS meeting. And I, and I could see right away, you know, what she was tracking on. Um, so I've, I've more or less sort of followed her work, you know, th- through the, the dissertation phase. And then when she was done, we, we did these little conference interviews at ETS and SBL. And so once she got it done, it was like, well, this is kind of a no brainer. You know, I, I, I wanted her to do the conference, you know, we had her back on the podcast too. So yeah, it, she did a great job. We would certainly have her back again, but this is only our third year, so we're trying to vary, you know, the field. Well, I hope that um, we're at, you're able to come in to the conference to Dallas this year because that's mm-hmm. kind of where we're at, and I'd love to yeah. be able to check that conference out. I, I, are there still spots open for it? Yeah, as far as registration, we a- we actually haven't really done much in terms of uh, announcing or opening registration because it it, it sold out both years, so the mm-hmm. the, the facility only holds three hundred. And it's it's an ideal facility, so we don't want to move it to anything bigger. Um, it's really a nice spot. So we'll we'll probably make the decision. Let's see. We just this is April first, April Fools. Yeah. So we'll probably probably by the end of this month we will, you know, make a decision to open it up. I mean, we're still sort of assuming that you know we may be able to have this, but uh, we'll we'll call that this month at some point. So when it opens up. You know, those of you who are, are interested, you need to be following uh, the social media, you know, my social media stuff and, and subscribe to the newsletter because once it announces, it's going to sell pretty quickly. Yeah. So just keep your eyes open for that. Excellent. Well, uh, just getting on to our topic today, I, what I'd love to dialogue with you about is the Garden of Eden. Uh, specifically, like what what is the garden? Uh, do we see the garden after after Adam and Eve are exiled from the garden kind of representation of that throughout the Old Testament and then kind of the culmination of what we see in the book of Rebel- Revelation from a garden to a garden uh, and why that's important, speaking of the divine family and the unseen realm uh, worldview and how that affects uh, some of the imagery there. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the, the Garden of Eden, you, you can look at this two ways, and I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I mean, I'm, I'm not predisposed to be one of those scholars, you know, who, who denies there was such a place, you know, with, with, you know, literal geography. Uh, the, you know, the, the, the garden has geography. It is a subset of Earth. So one of the first things we have to realize is that the whole Earth wasn't Eden. And Eden wasn't the whole earth. Um, it, again, it has specific geography, even though the geography, you know, there, there are a lot of questions that surround it, especially, you know, it, it, this, this material is written after the flood. So does like, w- wouldn't that mess up the geography, like with the rivers and, you know, before the flood and after the flood? I mean, I, don't, I really don't think those kinds of questions are the point, though, but that 
that isn't to say that there wasn't such a place. I mean, I'm, I'm perfectly fine with, with saying, yeah, there was such a place. But the bigger picture that is even reflected in the geography, because bibl biblical geography, when it comes to divine encounter, is often not intending to give us a place where we could go find, you know, latitude and longitude. Sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. But in this case, there's a whole lot more going on. Um, there's a reason why Eden is described as a garden. Eden, you know, fundamentally is where God comes to earth. And God comes to earth. He's going to start. You know, he, he creates the world. He has a reason for creating it. He certainly doesn't need to live in it. Uh, you know, his supernatural family who are disembodied, they don't need an embodied world. So God's up to something. Well, the thing he's up to is he's going to create a human family. And so he comes to this place he has just made. This is going to be his abode. And it's in this place where he wants his new human creations to live with him. He wants human children. And he wants them to be partners with him to spread what Eden is everywhere else. You know, he, he creates Adam and Eve and gives them, you know, a mandate to be fruitful and you know, have lots of kids because it's a big job. You know, go out there and subdue the earth, you know, master it, you know, be lords of it. So we, we're, we're, we have a steward kingship idea. Uh, you know, it's not that they don't have anything to do in Eden, but the verbs are different. They, they describe something that is that needs restraint, that needs uh, mastery, whereas Eden doesn't. Eden is not described in those terms. And so their, their job is, again, to make the rest of the world like this wonderful place, you know, Eden, to, to spread the goodness of God and every, all humans should know who, who God is and whatnot, and all these big picture themes. Well, that's conceptually what it is. It's the realm of God. And in, in the ancient Near Eastern world, gods lived in gardens. Okay. They also lived on mountains. And there's a reason why Eden is called a mountain. In Ezekiel 28, well, is, is it a garden or is it a mountain? The answer is, well, yeah. Yeah, it, both, of, both of these these descriptive phrases, these metaphors are used of the place where God has come to be with man on earth, you know, for a reason. You know, the, there's this concept in Old Testament thought called the cosmic mountain or the cosmic garden, and it's the realm of the gods. And usually the worldview is that, well, this is where the gods are. And it's not where humans belong. Humans are, are forbidden for the most part. In the biblical mindset, that is not true at all. Humans were created to be fit for sacred space, for the cosmic garden, the cosmic mountain, from the very beginning. This is where God wants them. This is what he intends. He wants people to be with him. The ancient Near Eastern view isn't like that. Even though they use the same terminology, you know, why gardens? Well, if, if you're living in a world where it's arid and it's basically a subsistent culture, unless you're a king or something, a, a garden is a place where there's lush vegetation. There's never any want of things to eat. There's enough water. It, it's paradise. There's a reason why it's portrayed as paradise. When, and surely if the gods are somewhere on earth, it must be paradise. Is that, you know, they, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't lack for anything. You know, mountains are what they are because they're remote. They're inaccessible. They, they create a distinction and a barrier between the gods and humans. So the, these, are, these are, you know, it's, it's the language of place 
there, there's metaphor involved to teach us that there's a, a firm distinction between gods and men, between the divine world and, and human beings. But, but scripture's you know, story really begins with God's desire to have people with him. And that's a fundamental difference. And, you know, you know, there, this plays out in scripture in, in a lot of ways after Eden. You know, we know the story about Adam and Eve being expelled. And then the place is guarded. The tree of life is guarded by, you know, cherubim, even tree of life. You know, the source of life is in this place. Well, what place? Well, where God is. Okay, there's no death there. It's where God is. God is, is associated with life and not death. Um, after Eden, you know, we, we get we get mountains. You know, we get Sinai. Uh, when God, you know, leaves with his people from Sinai to go to the land that he has promised, he travels, you know, inside the Holy of Holies with the Ark of the Covenant. And when when it's stationary, we set up the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is direct is decorated to remind people of a garden. You know, we have a tree of life in there. We've got, you know, the, the food, you know, that, that you know, the, the bread of life. You know, we, we've got specific markers of, of geography that, that remind people of this place, this other place. You know, when we get the temple eventually, why is the temple decorated like a, like a lush forest with animals and plants? Well, it's to make you think of, of the garden. You know, and why is that garden place put on Mount Zion? Well, because that's where gods live. They, they live on mountains. You know, elevated places, and they live in gardens. I mean, again, the, these are these are just ideas, conceptual, you know, metaphors that that reflect the worldview, that are designed to teach us something. It doesn't mean these places aren't real. Obviously, Zion's real, Sinai's real. I don't see any reason to think that there wasn't an Eden, but it's just bigger than that. And when you get to the New Testament, there are interesting things that happen in gardens, or they're not. Okay, uh, you know, in the Old Testament. Why, why do so many divine encounters, why are they marked with a tree or occur at a tree? Why is divine revelation often dispensed in the vicinity of a tree? Why does Joshua bury the word of God at a tree and erect a shrine there? Because the, the trees are markers of, of the original tree, you know, where God met with people, you know, the tree of life. I mean, these things just get carried on through scripture. Why is the Messiah referred to as a branch? A stump of a tree. Again, th th this the language is intentional. It's supposed to connect the thing being talked about with something else that is part of the the, the meta narrative, you know, of scripture, the supernatural epic, you know, that we call salvation history. There there are reasons for the vocabulary, but again, we these are all trajectories we can pursue, you know, if, if you want to discuss them. But we don't we don't really read our Bible this way. You know, we we tend to sort of default to, well, a tree's that thing I could I could hang a rope on and make a swing, you know, or it's got it's got leaves, you know, or, or you know, we 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 tend to to overly literalize things, and what I mean by that is we don't think conceptually about this this object or this place, the way biblical writers would would like us to think and the way they were thinking. So. Just kind of to follow up on that, you you mentioned a couple of things that cause the 
the readers to draw close attention when they're when they're reading the story of the tabernacle and the temple they see that there's a lot of imagery that is representative of the garden and going oh that, that draws my attention in ezekiel there's special mention to certain kind of stones that are present mm-hmm. in the garden now from what i understand that these stones are also integral in the building of the temple is that correct well i i think if you're referring to the stones of fire I think that's actually uh, my take on the onyx, the jasper, the the, sapphire, the emerald. That yes, I I think I think those things are to are to mark. They they certainly get used in the Book of Revelation. You know when when Mm -hmm. it's when you get the the final temple, the final version of you know this or the city, I should say, you know that, that comes down. I mean you 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 get these same sorts of stones, and yes, in in ancient in the ancient Near East. You would get these stones, these particular gems, in association with the building of the house for the deity. Um, and, and so, yes, there, there, there's a there's certainly a conceptual connection between, you know, the dwelling place of, of God or the gods and this garden by virtue of even the stones and the gold. I mean, look at the look at the description, the geographical description of Eden, gold and bdellium, you know, just things like this. Onyx. These are are common elements, common you know features or tools uh, of temple building, not only in the biblical world but you know in in the wider ancient Near Eastern world. So it would have telegraphed, you know, that we have <laughs> that again. Eden is more than just a place with latitude and longitude. It, it is a place where where God dwells. That's the primary thing. You know, it it. It essentially is, you know, while the earth is, you know, you could say that the whole earth, you know, God's building the whole earth and then he rests. And what, what is he building? You know, where do gods rest? Well, they live, they rest in their temples. Uh, you know, in, in some respects, you know, the, the whole creation is like that. But I think more specifically, when God does come to earth to be with his people, he comes to this place. And so Eden is his temple. It is his house. And, and, and these elements, you know, help people to make the, make the mental connection between the creation account and that idea. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> thank you, Dr. Heiser. Uh, could you maybe fill us in a little bit on maybe broadly the role of the sons of God in this, and then maybe uh, maybe specifically Satan? And the reason I'm thinking of him is it's commonly understood um, by, uh, by some or by many that Ezekiel 28 is speaking mm-hmm. of uh, Satan and the fall of Satan. And I want to just read you a specific section that follows up to what Josh read, where it was like, it, it starts out by talking about you were in Eden, the garden of God, precious stones, and he just named the stones and you just mm-hmm. referred to them. And as it keeps going, uh, verse 14, you are an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you, uh, I placed you, you were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. So you just referred to that. You were blameless in your ways from the days you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. And of course we could keep going, but, um, how does how does Satan fit into this story and kind of help us piece together in Ezekiel twenty eight with uh, Genesis chapter three? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't think Ezekiel twenty eight or Isaiah fourteen is and here, this is the key word is about Satan. Mm-hmm. Okay, you know they're, what they're about two kings, you know one of Babylon, one of Tyre that are basically you know you know, poster children for hubris. Okay. Mm -hmm, And so the prophets, the prophets respectively are, 
going after them. But my view is that, and again, it's not just my view. It's a, you know, I didn't, I didn't invent the view. There are lots of people who share it. That the writers, respectively, of these chapters are drawing on the story of a, a divine rebel in the council. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the hubris of that entity wanting to be like the most high mm-hmm. uh, is, is the backdrop for what they are accusing these human kings of. I mean, basically, you, this, is, this is the kind of hubris this takes. You know, Ezekiel 28, you think you're a god. You think, you, think, you know, you're, <clears throat> where you live is, is, the, is the Moshav, you know, El, you know, the, the dwelling place of, of God. And it's, it comes right out of Canaanite. There's a lot of Babylonian stuff, you know, in Isaiah 14, which we would expect because it's the king of Babel. Um, <clears throat> you have council language. You have uh, a member of the council that essentially wants autonomy, wants to be the one in the, in the seat of the gods, uh, where, you know, where the decision making occurs, wants to be in charge of that. And so that notion is used again to, to characterize these two kings. And so what, what I see happening in, in Genesis 3, Genesis 3 either is drawing on the same idea or is, you know, I think in some ways it is a source, not the source, but a source for for what Isaiah and Ezekiel 28 are doing. And you, you, could, you could hold that view regardless of when you think Genesis 3 was written, whether it's early or late. But I think they're, they're, all, they're all sort of tracking on the same thing. In, in the Genesis 3 incident, the, the divine being you know, comes as a serpent. All right, I don't think this is at all about zoology. Genesis right. 3 does not exist to give us a zoology lesson. An ancient reader, when he's reading, you know, something and, and one of the, the animals talk, all of a sudden he knows, okay, you know, animals don't talk. So the gods are up to something here. What, what's really going on? I mean, they, they can tell. They're, they're used to this. And, and so, you know, we, we have this imagery of this divine being as a serpent for particular reasons. It communicates certain things about you know, his nature and his character. We don't need to drift out into that. But you have an entity who has decided at some point prior to tempting the humans that I want to basically be in charge of and just tweak the parameters of this relationship of what's going on in this place called Eden. And in ultimately he wants the elimination of humans because they're lesser. It's all made. They're, they're, they're lower than the Elohim. So, this is the you know what what's going on in Eden. You have a member of the council. Ezekiel refers to this entity as as a guardian cherub, okay, mm-hmm. uh, so on and so forth. Now a lot of scholars, you know, will will resist this, and they will point. To, I don't want to get too far into the weeds here, you know, because it doesn't really translate well to a podcast. But they will they will resist this because the traditional Hebrew text, the Masoretic text. <clears throat> It has some not difficult. Well, I, I guess you could call them difficulties, but they're difficulties because there's some uh, there's some atypical grammar. It's not it's not non-Hebraic. There, we don't have textual errors here. It's just there's some archaic forms. You know, think just things like that. History Hebrew has a history of, you know in its language, just like any other language. There's nothing wrong with the Masoretic text. It can be read very straightforwardly. Uh, just like most of our English translation ha- translations have. But there are other scholars who want to go with the Septuagint, which distinguishes between 
it make it puts two characters in Ezekiel 28 instead of one. You know, the Septuagint will have you were with the guardian cherub. Okay, and, and so for many scholars, since they they prefer the Septuagint here, will will say no that the villain the villain in the backdrop here you know isn't the, the cherub it's Adam. You know, and so Adam is the point of the characterization. Adam becomes the point of the gems, you know, the, the, and they, they'll try to associate that with the priesthood, even though all the gems aren't accounted for with that view. But they are accounted for if you just take, you know, take a temple view, which is why I go that direction. I don't I don't like mostly accounted for. I like accounted for. Right. Uh, so this is where you get this this alternative view. And if you take that view that that. The anointed cherub in Ezekiel 28 is not the, the villain back in the backdrop. Then scholars don't see any association at all with between that chapter and Genesis 3. Yeah, so uh, there, there are a number of problems with this. And I, you know, I get into them in the demons book in a little more detail. I do do it in Unseen Realm. But, you know, my view is that the Masoretic text is fine. There's no reason to depart from it. The backdrop here is a supernatural rebel in the divine council. That's what we see going on in Genesis 3. That is the backdrop that is presumed for both Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. And this is why they share so much vocabulary. And they do. I have this laid out in my books. They share lots of vocabulary. And a lot of that vocabulary is associated with the divine council in many other passages. I don't think that's a coincidence. I, th I think that's, that's what we have here. So just a question of, of clarification. I've heard some say when, when talking about the Garden of Eden, uh, you, you said it's not about zoology, where it says the serpent was the craftiest beast of the field. Um, again, I, I, I wouldn't place these guys on the same kind of collegiate level as I place you. So that's why I'm, I'm tossing the question in your, your direction. And they, they suggest that the Ezekiel narrative says that, that uh, uh, Eden was on a mountain. Um, again, not pointing to direct correlation, but that the reader would hear, ah, the serpent of the field, this flat plain doesn't belong in Eden, this place of the mountain. Is it, is it, is it, is the author in fact trying to communicate that, that this, that this uh, being doesn't geographically belong in the garden um, by well, saying if, beast of the field? If, yeah, if you're only thinking of literal geography, that's where your mind would go. Mm -hmm. Okay. So my, my first question would be, well, is Eden a garden or a mountain? Yes. You know, Really, you know, is it a garden yeah. or a mountain? And if you deny one of them, why? Because one says one verse says one thing, the other says the other. You know, mm -hmm. so I mean, that alone should tell you that we're not just dealing with simple geography either. Gotcha. Okay. You know, we we are using the language of place because, like, what else are we going to do? We're embodied beings. You know. <laughs> you know right. Was, right. I actually did this in my class. I, I I made people take out a half sheet of paper and I said, okay, what I want you to do is draw a place that has no latitude, longitude, height, depth, or width begin. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and it was the whole, the whole thing was to press the point. Like, like, what do I do now? Uh, and that's what we have here. We, we, we don't just have, you know, simple geography. I think the point of, of the curse there is, is since we do have, uh, again, a, a theologic, you have, you have theology and metaphor going on here. The, the, the being who wanted to be the most high is now going to be put beneath, you know, even mm. even the creaturely creation crawling on its belly. Sure. Right. Yeah. And, and ultimately, ultimately, you know, the the Eretz, the 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 earth, I think there's a double entendre there because that word can be used of Sheol, the underworld. 
So not only are we content to have you beneath the hooves, so to speak, if we're using you know, our literal language here, of the beasts of the field, but you're going to be way down there, okay? You're going to be, you're going to be under the earth, okay? Which is why, you know, the, this, this figure, and in Isaiah 14, it's very clear, this figure is associated with the realm of the dead. Uh, you know, there, again, there are reasons why the characterizations are what they are. You know, and, and of course, that fits with Eden because Eden, one of the, one of the pardon the pun, one of the, the points of fallout, we know with the fall, is we're going to die. The loss of immortality. Everyone now is going to go to the realm of the dead, where this entity, this, this being has been consigned. You know, so, so since you followed him in your rebellion, he in effect owns you. You're going to go to the same place. And, and this is, again, where, where we get, you know, Sheol and Lord of the Dead, you know, kind of thinking. And, and that's, you know, extrapolated in other passages. And, you know, all these threads tend to converge, you know, later on in Second Temple literature and, of course, the New Testament with, you know, with Satan. You know, and, and of course, you know, the, the, the serpent in Genesis 3 is never called, you know, Satan. It's never called Satan. Uh, you know, we, we don't get that in Isaiah 14. We don't get it in Ezekiel 28. You know, there, there's a whole issue that I talk about in, in Unseen Realm related to this, that, that critical scholars love this because they, they, they like to pit the Old Testament against the New, like the New Testament writers are just making stuff up. They were bored. And, you know, I, I'm done reading my Old Testament. You know, let's make up something new here. You know, I got it. Let's invent a villain called Satan. Oh, that sounds cool. That'd be a great movie. You know, no, it, this is, this is, it's misguided thinking. What you have is you have a rebel in Genesis 3. The term Satan is not used of that rebel in the Hebrew Bible because where Satan is used, it, it's used of either an opposer or a challenger, both in a good or, or possibly bad sense. But as time goes on in the second temple period, it, it takes on a more, more, more of the negative characteristic of someone who's adversarial. And so at some point, some writer in the second temple period thought, you know, you know, that that's what that serpent was doing back there in Eden. He was opposing God. He didn't like what God wanted to do. Let, let's let's use this word to describe him. And then, you know, our readers will understand that, you know, it'll make the point even more that this was an adversary. You know, this this guy wasn't doing what God wanted to do. So let's call him Satan. And they call him lots of other things that don't appear in the Hebrew Bible as well. Look, if the shoe fits make him wear it. Okay, that, that's what you've got. Yeah. That, that's all you've got. The theology is not based on a on vocabulary. The, the theology is not based on a term or when you use the term. What, what chronological point did we use the term? That's where the theology is born. No. The theology is what it is. You can use lots of vocabulary and you don't, where's the cosmic rule that says I have to use the same set of vocabulary to convey the theology? You know, where is that? Is that like in the rule book at the end of the Bible? You know, thou shalt only use certain vocabulary words to convey certain theological points. No, it's ridiculous. <laughs> okay? So it doesn't matter that Satan doesn't get used of this villain in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3. Okay? It's a way to describe him later. He still does what he does. He's still an enemy. He's still got in the way. So... What's the problem? You know, but again, this is one of these artificial village atheist problems that you get on, on the Internet. 
that unfortunately there there are scholars I think that that whether they mean to or not sort of feed into it and, and try to come across like there's some opposition going on, some theological stuff in the New Testament that isn't there. Here, you, you know, when, the, when the demons book comes out, your audience will, will know, I'll use this sentence in the book or something like it. It's like, look, when it comes to this notion that the New Testament has a different demonology or a different Satanology than the Old Testament does, I reject that. What I would say is that all of the data points for New Testament demonology and New Testament Satanology are in the Old Testament. They're just not assembled there. But all the data points are there. So all you have people doing in the Second Temple period in the New Testament is they're, you know, drum roll, please. They're looking at their Hebrew Bible and thinking, I wonder, you know, how do the data point, how do we understand the data points? Like, let, you know, what can we do to sort of, you know, fit this all together? How do we, how do we take the data of our sacred text and understand it? You know, Lord, help us to put this together. That mm -hmm. That's all they're doing. That's, that's all awesome. they're doing. You know, they're, they're, they're not just making stuff up. Uh, Dr. Heiser, uh, I wonder if you could maybe... That's a bit and of talking a hobby about <laughs> no, that's great. Uh, as we talk about Satan, this serpent, um, I wonder if you could maybe sort of give your uh, give your best sort of biography of Satan. You know, we've I just read the passage in Ezekiel twenty eight about you know from the day you were created, you were blameless until unrighteousness was found in you. By the time we get to Genesis three, we already see that he's crafty. He's up to no good by then. Uh, I mean, so just dating back in history, what's our best understanding? Does this connect in some way to the sort of primordial chaos of the earth before God began, uh, his this work in like, creation? This and, is like and then just kind bios. of go ahead. What's that? I was gonna say this is like one of those bios where like the childhood is covered in two paragraphs. And then yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. And Jesus grew in favor with God and man. Right. Yep. And, <laughs> give us a biography of Satan. Go. <laughs> that's, that's a really good analogy, Luke 252. You want to know yeah. what happened to those missing 18 years? Or like that, that really dramatic moment where like Moses is raised in Pharaoh's household and then one day he like kills a dude and hides his body. Like that's one <laughs> right. verse. Like he just he saw a dude beaten uh beaten in uh an Israelite. He kills him, hides his body, the end. And it's like, whoa, whoa, that's a crazy <laughs> character arc and like that's, one that's verse. All you need to know up to this point. <laughs> yeah. Right. What but, happened to but Moses? He's, <laughs> but he's part of this divine council and at yeah. some point goes rogue. Yeah. And every then... member every member of the heavenly host in you know, the spiritual world, you know, has has a this is another dispute that scholars have. Well, we could only refer to the really important spiritual guys as being the council. Well, why? You know, it's kind of like Congress. If I say Congress was in session, well, I certainly mean the senators, you know, the, the, the represent the elected people. Okay. I certainly mean them, but do I mean to say all their staff had off? They didn't show up. No, of course not. You know, Congress is is more of a collective than that. So I, I think any member of the heavenly host 
has some role to play you know, in, in this council relationship. They may not be decision makers, but they're, they're there. They're part of, of the structure. They're part of the, of the hierarchy, the picture, the bureaucracy is probably a better way to say it. So you had one of these beings, you know, cherub is, again, a term drawn from the, the Akkadian Babylonian world for a throne guardian. And like, was God scared? Did he need protection? You know, was it Chuck Norris? You know, the spiritual Chuck yeah. Norris. You know? <laughs> no, it, it, it just refers to, to guarding sacred space to protect it from defilement. Okay. That's all it is. You know, so we have, you know, for our, our purposes, the, the important thing to observe, though, is that that person, that figure has close proximity. Has close proximity to the presence of God. So we know that. We know, you know, we know he's part of the, the bureaucracy, he has close proximity to God. We know because of the imaging language and the plurals that, you know, he, he has one of the, the attributes that God shares with, his, with the beings who are like him, which are us and them, is freedom, okay? So he's, he's got the ability to, to, to choose, and he chooses poorly, uh, you know, autonomy and so on and so forth. So we know that when he, whenever he crossed that line was before the fall, because he has to decide to, upon this strategy, you know, to, to get humans in trouble. But that's about really all we know. We know he's a created being. Okay, there is only one creator in biblical thought. Um, <clears throat> you know, so we don't really know a whole lot, you know, beyond that. Sure. Uh, you know, so maybe, that, that's a real short, it might be, maybe we get two verses out of that instead of one, you know, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, uh, and, and it's great, you know, maybe we, we'll, we'll trans transition back into garden narrative and maybe talk about some revelation stuff, some Genesis stuff. We talk about the gar uh, the, the, the tree of life. I was watching a, a podcast uh, by some of your buddies at the Bible Project, and they were talking about how they, they viewed the tree of life as something that was going to be continually partaken of. And I don't want to make, I might be misrepresenting them, but but I think uh, if I heard them correctly, they were saying that the tree of life was something that Adam and Eve would have eaten from regularly. Uh, and when they sinned, it's as if they, by abiding into the tree, as regularly partaking of this life, they were continuing in everlasting life. But by being separated mm -hmm. from that tree, uh, it's like as if their immortality was conditional on partaking of that tree regularly. D does that seem to make sense to you? Yeah, that, that actually, I, I don't know if, you know, I'm certainly not going to take credit for for this because, again, I didn't. The dirty little secret of unseen realm was Mike never had an original thought. Uh, so, I I do view Adam and Eve as having contingent immortality, and and I may have talked with that talked with Tim and John about that, but they may have you know that may have been their view from the very beginning. I don't know, but this sounds like a lot like like my view. Let let's play with this a little bit because here's an example. Where, okay, how would we read this literally versus metaphorically? And why are those not in conflict? Okay. So the, a literalistic approach assumes there is an Adam and Eve, there is a garden, there is a tree. And so as long as they, they keep eating from this tree, they are going to stay alive. Providing that, you know, providing for two things. One, they don't sin. And two, they don't do anything really stupid. Okay, they're 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 mortals. So if if Adam gets a little too close to the to two elephants frolicking in the field and one of them steps on him, okay, you know he's going to die. He's going to get crushed. <laughs> he's not going to just stand up and say, "Well, knock that off." You know that wasn't very not. You know 
okay, he's he's dead. Okay, <laughs> give me some fruit. Quick, quick, go grab a fruit. Right? Yeah. Throw <laughs> it's like my, some kind of X Men movie where like he starts throwing back elixir. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, like if he cuts himself too deeply, he's gonna bleed. Okay, they're they're humans. That's what they are. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they can't do anything stupid, and they can't sin. So as long as they're as they're doing that. And they eat from the tree. They're gonna they're gonna live, you know, keep living. Okay, you know, you, you can throw the, the literalness away and, and communicate the same point. As long as they are in the dwelling place of God, the house of God, the presence of God, where there is life and not death, they're going to live forever. The only thing that's going to prevent that is if they're expelled. Now they're not at the source of life anymore. You know, the, the, the metaphor and the, and the literalness, I mean, it, it, they, they work hand in hand. So, again, this is this is my view that, that Adam and Eve had contingent immortality. It was contingent on those two things. And like you could throw in a mm. third, just, just God's pleasure. OK, you could throw that one in. But, you know, once they're divorced from that, they have to be blocked either way. Again, either metaphorical or literal view. They cannot continue to eat from the tree of life because then the curse, the, the, the judgment, you shall surely die, is thwarted. They won't die. Right. So they must be kept away from the source of life. Now they're estranged from God. They're, they're going to die. You know, this, this is their inevitable end. You, you will surely die. You know, and, and so, you know, I, I think, you know, if we, if we look at that, we, we really get the message loud and clear as to what what the cost of this is, you know, we can just different ways of thinking about it. Mm-hmm. So, so there are two like, uh, like seemingly obvious questions for me that follow up behind that. Um, because we've done some episodes on hell recently with people who were conditionalist, uh, where they, they would say the, the immortality of man is conditional upon receiving eternal life from Christ. So, so I know that's kind of putting you on the spot. It's not really a garden of Eden question, uh, but but maybe if you want to maybe dodge that question and answer another one, I have another yeah. one backed up for you. Uh, no, go what, ahead, what are your man. thoughts on unconditionalism and hell? And uh, if you if you're not naturally immortal, uh, if, you're, if if the soul is not immortal, uh, does it need Christ to for the soul to be immortal? Is hell eternal All conscious right. torment, or do you let, cease let, to be? Let's just take let's just take the you know on the positive side. Obviously, this is this is easy because. You can take concepts like being in Christ, and of mm-hmm. course, Christ is eternal. You know, this identification of us with Christ and being made like Him and in His, you know, all these things sort of work together. There, it's a matrix of ideas. You know, and, and joined to Him, joined to His resurrection, the, the eternal life is really easy to see on the on the positive side. I, I would I would say yes on the negative side. Those are legitimate questions. They're legitimate issues. For me, both the traditional view of hell that it's eternal torment mm-hmm. and annihilation, both of those are on the table for me. And it, and it depends on really for me one question. When in in the book of Revelation, when when we read something like uh, again, I don't know if I'll get this exact, but that the last enemy to be destroyed, this is either 1 Corinthians 15 or Revelation, at the end of Revelation, it may be both, but the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Mm -hmm. Okay. If that means in real time what it says, then death is destroyed. If that is true, then how can you have death continue? 
I thought it was destroyed. Sure. Mm-hmm. You know, now, now the result of that is still eternal separation from God because death is destroyed and you're not, again, with you're not in Christ. And so by definition, yes, you'd be annihilated and that's forever. You know, but if if we're if that's supposed to be taken as poetic language, it doesn't really mean that death is going to actually be destroyed. It it just means that you know it's going to be, you know, it's a it's a way of sort of negativizing to the nth degree God's attitude toward the place of judgment. Okay, you know, this is poetic language, and that if you take it that way, that allows death to be ongoing. Mm-hmm. So, so I don't really know. I, I don't. I don't feel a high degree of certainty about either. But you know, to to me, annihilation could make good sense. But I I don't know that it's right. You know that that that's fair. That's, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. That's good, uh, Michael. You got a question, real quick, and I'll have yeah. a follow up for him. Hey, and I love your humility on that. It's wonderful to hear such a biblical scholar say, so, I'm not sure on something. So to watch <laughs> me affirm my own lack of omniscience. I'm <laughs> yes, yes, yes. We're, we're thankful. My TV, you know, I just, <laughs> I have to ask awesome. my wife how to work my TV. So that's, that's, my living, that's my living illustration of how dumb I am. But, and her, by the way. <laughs> yeah, well, um. So just tracing with the story of the garden and the tree of life from the very beginning of the Bible to the very end of the Bible, and Josh referenced Revelation earlier, and then you have the new heavens and the new earth. You have kind of like this garden city, but you have uh, you have the trees, trees now of life whose leaves are for the healing of the nations. Mm-hmm. And so could you unpack for us what that is and means? I think since we have a, a a global Eden, again there there again the, the whole world now is Eden, so it, it would make sense to have the tree, you know there, you know the what what passage spe- specifically because I I think I need to be looking at it for this one. Okay, sure. It's, I'm gonna go. I'm, I'm gonna, gonna guess it's Revelation guess twenty-two. See, that's what I, I just put in Revelation 22. So tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So it's Revelation 22, really the first two verses. So you have Edenic imagery there. And you know, it's, it's the whole world. If you keep you know, you go back into 21, you read the rest you know, into 22. So how would the tree of life, how would the global Eden be for the healing of the nations? I think it's a reference to the resolution of the the judgment at Babel, which was one of the three reasons why the world was in chaos and turmoil. Mm-hmm. You know why why there was so much evil in the world, and it, it's also a, a nod to the defeat of the fallen sons of God who were over the nations because of of the Babel episode. So it it's the gospel that that results in the healing of the nations. It's the gospel that results in the accomplishment of the global Eden, of, of Eden being restored. So I, I think that's the connection, you know, that that now the whole world is what God wanted it to be originally. Heaven has returned to earth and all of the fragmentation and evil and chaos is whole because, you know, you, you have the earlier reference to, uh, let me just go back up here, Revelation 21. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had, had passed away. 
this one of my this this is this is like a linchpin verse for me. So I, I I'm kind of emotionally wrapped up in it. It says the sea was no more. Okay, yeah. it doesn't mean that we don't have dolphins anymore. Okay, right. it doesn't mean that we it's don't have whales, and salt water. It's you know if you understand that you know the metaphor of the sea that that it, this is this is like a primary chaos metaphor. You know for everything that is just disorder and anti Eden. Mm-hmm. Okay, all that's gone. So I you am, have I'm you thrilled have, you by the way. That, Go which, ahead. which you don't know is Stephen Bankars came on and talked about dolphins healing people on some of the new age <laughs> stuff. So the fact that you brought up We've that there was two, no dolphins, I was just I was thrilled that you brought up dolphins back to the two program. Two dolphin mentions in the same well, week. This sorry, is a win. We need to, we need to lighten lighten the mood a little. I know you were you were emotionally invested in that verse. So I wanted to you know uh, bring a little levity back to the situation. Continue your explanation. I'm sorry, I just started bringing that up. Stephen and I did not collaborate. On this. Good, good. No just the spirit of the Lord, just providence. <laughs> no, it, it's like, but but you look at that in Revelation 21, you look at this in Revelation 22, and, you know, of course, you know, of yeah. course, ev- everything is, is, everything has come full circle. It is what it is supposed to be now, you know, and, and, and the tree of life, again, emblematic of the life of God, there is no death. Mm-hmm. There can't be any death because there's no chaos. Okay, that all these things are removed. So I, again, that I think is it, I hate to say this, but it's so obvious to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. Yeah, at at hey, this point, it's so obvious to me. But there was a time I love the ocean, and that so. makes me very happy. Yeah, that makes that is, I'm right there with you. That may, I like to, I like to think that we have I'm like <laughs> my eternal paradise. You take away like one of the best parts of Earth. No, yeah. don't do that. Yeah, we like those beaches. So uh, I think we have enough time for maybe one more question. So uh, maybe a, maybe a brief question for you in the Book of Revelation, uh, or, or even even in the. Um, uh, eschatological literature that we have in the Old Testament, talking about Eden, death being no more, child, children living to be a thousand, they die young under the millennial reign, whether that's allegorical or literal. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you talked about Adam in the garden, if he was trampled by, you know, a hippo, or I think you used the elephant illustration, Dolphin. dolphins, whatever. If he's trampled <laughs> by dolphins, um, <laughs> he's, he's a strange garden here in, in the New Jerusalem. <laughs> Do, 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 uh, is, is there death for animals, right? Like, uh, do, do lions literally stop being carnivorous? Do we eat animals in the New Jerusalem? Are we all vegan? Cause I thought this was good news, yeah. Dr. Heiser. And <laughs> I'm a big fan of like an aged yeah, steak and I'm pretty sure that that should be there I, in the New I, Jerusalem. I think there, you know, again, even if you're vegan, is there plant death? You know, all this kind of stuff, you know, you I, I don't think the narratives are, are, are again, designed for an examination of of the uh, the alteration of anatomy and and bio the, the new biochemistry that's going to occur in our body that that isn't the point praise you know? God but you know if you look at the Edenic picture I think there is something to the observation that after the flood God does say you know that that's when sort of God permits you know the the consumption of flesh okay so you could take that. And say, well, that wasn't the original condition in Eden. You know, we didn't have this. And I, you know, again, since I don't think it's about science or about a zoology lesson, lesson, I think that the point there is, again, there's no death in the way that the, that the Bible would would view death, and that is the you have a, a conscious living thing that is terminated. Okay, mm-hmm. you know, the Bible doesn't really talk about plants. 
you know, it, I mean, it'll use the, la the, the language of crops dying, but but we know that just means, you know, they wither and they dry up and so on and so forth. It's not, it's not the same like with an animal or a human, you know, something that, you know, sort of, I hate to, well, I'll use this word, engages, you know, the human world or, or humans on, on some level. So I, I think the point is that you, you just don't have death anymore. You know, does that mean we, we don't eat? It, well, again, I don't know that we can really draw that conclusion. I don't think we'd have to, but I, you know, again, if it's Eden, yeah, we probably can. We can, we can, you know, eat, eat of, you know, the garden and, and so on and so forth. Does that mean we don't need to drink? Does it don't need? Does it mean we don't need oxygen anymore? You know, again, it doesn't answer these questions. You know, there it, it uses the language of embodiment. It's designed to to make us think of this of this perfected place. It doesn't really tell us how the perfected place works, as opposed to the way this place works now. So I don't think it really answers, you know, any of any of those kinds of questions, even though they're normal for us to to think about and ask. But I just don't think those things are addressed. We're we're at the time marker where you've got to go get to your meeting. Uh -huh. So um, I just bad. want to briefly get. Yeah, I know. I, I, I'd love to to dialogue. I see. I, so I, I always ask Doctor <laughs> Doctor Heiser. I say, Hey man, uh, what kind of dates can you give me? And he always offers two dates, and I'm like, Can I have both of them? <laughs> Every <laughs> single time. I'm like, uh, I'll take both. And he goes, Okay, <laughs> just one this time. <laughs> no, no. Hey, I I'm honored to have you on you, yeah. once a year. If I can get you more than that, man, I'm I'm giddy uh just do some closing thoughts if you have to disconnect dr heiser uh, uh let, let, maybe we should let you go ahead and do how do people get connected with you some of your books yeah. um and that kind of thing before we wrap up so that we can we yeah, do that, some closing thoughts even without you yeah my homepage is drmsh.com you can follow me on twitter at msheiser.com uh, all the books are on amazon demons uh, you can pre-order it's going to ship at the end of april i actually got a box of them yesterday so i know they're real um, Praise God. So that that's the latest one coming out. So yeah, Amazon and my homepage. Keep up with just about everything I do. Cool. Well, hey, thank you so much for coming on the show yep. again. Uh, yep. Michael, get some closing thoughts for the show today. Thank you. Yeah, sure. Well, be blessed. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, I think for me, it, uh, I mean, it was an honor to have him. I was going to tell him that, but I just, I just heard him Skype hang I'll, up. I'll, I'll send him an email. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Um, anyway, uh, I, I think for me, it is... Uh, it's just, it's about the nature of God that, mm -hmm. you know, you have Satan come in and basically wreck everything with Adam and Eve agreeing, but basically everything gets wrecked, but not abandoned. Mm -hmm. Like God actually has this plan where he works through history to redeem what was originally started. So you start with this perfect garden world and you end with this perfect garden world. You start with tree of life and you end with it. And it's not that we're zapping away to heaven and then like, man, let's get rid of the dumpster fire. We're done there. Like Satan messed that up. Like he redeems humanity through resurrection. He redeems the the whole universe with the new heavens and new earth, tree of life. Like it, he, he's a God of redemption. And I think just a practical encouragement applicationally is that this is when when this is the nature of our God, there's nothing that Satan can do in our lives to permanently sidetrack us. Mm -hmm. It is uh, that that we worship a God of redemption. As we walk with Him, we will see the redemption of God in our lives. That's great, and I think just right alongside that is just talking about the the providence or sovereignty of God in the midst of working amongst these free will agents. Yes, um, that God says, "Hey, this is Plan A, and I'm not diverting from Plan A." 
and all of these free will agents can 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 toil and spin all they want. Uh, but my my plans and my purposes will not be thwarted. And I think at a time like, frankly, if you're watching this as we're live streaming, it's a Corona season. Our coronavirus has kind of taken the world by storm. A microscopic mm-hmm. organism has brought the the world powers to their knees. Yes. Uh, uh, and I think that we can look at that as Christians and say, well, well, no matter what is going on in the world, the toils, the plans and purposes of God will be accomplished. Yeah. And and we know uh, that, that he is, he's got power over this stuff. So Amen. we're thankful on that and we, we see how it ends. So yeah. if you guys are watching right now, make sure to tune in every single Monday night at 830 PM central standard time. We're cranking out content just like this every single Monday night with uh, pastors, teachers, and theologians from all over the world. We've got some really exciting episodes coming down the pipe. And because of the Corona season, we've been actually been producing two or three shows a week. So make sure that you hit subscribe under that bell icon. There is an uh, all notifications that will let you know, uh, you know, when we're coming out with shows on Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday uh, in case we're coming out with more content uh, every week. So uh, any, any other thoughts, man? Uh, no, man. That's about it. Cool. Well, you guys be blessed and we will see you next Monday night, 830 p.m. Central Standard Time here on Remnant Radio. Be blessed. want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek and Hebrew. And you need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description, and you can use the promo promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classroom. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of REMNANT Radio.